Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Morning. Morning. Uh, my, again, uh, Joe introduced me a little bit earlier, but my name is Wes. Um, I'm the director of Hope Kids, and I also kind of run the Hope Youth side of things as well. So basically anything 0 to 18-year-olds. Uh, if, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Um, and I think like most people here at Hope, um, we're just really glad you're here. Uh, last Sunday, I was teaching OKC. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, that's our third through fifth graders. Um, OKC stands for Older Kids Club, or Older older Kids Class, either or, it's interchangeable. Uh, And uh, we were talking through a story in the Gospels in which some religious leaders were trying to test Jesus. Um, They were kind of trying to set up a trick question about uh, paying taxes, and I won't go into all the details of that, because that's actually not the purpose of today's sermon. Um, But one of the activities that we did... um, was we, we took these coins and we did some rubbings uh, because in, in this story Jesus answers this tough question about taxes um, basically by uh, saying like hey look at who's on the coin and, and render unto Caesar the person on the coin what belongs to Caesar and so this is kind of just a picture of what you might expect um, a coin from Jesus' day to look like roughly um, but then the coins that we used were obviously not coins like this. They were mostly U.S. coins. We had Washington and Jefferson and FDR and Lincoln, bases like that. But I also had um, like some Euros and some like Canadian and Australian coins. And on those coins in particular, we had a different face. This face. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but a few days ago on Friday, September 8th, was the one-year anniversary of her death. Um, But she was the longest reigning monarch in the history of the UK and possibly the longest reigning female monarch in history, certainly in recorded history. So she was a big deal. All the kids in the OKC knew exactly who she was. Um, But we also talked for a moment about what happened after this queen died. Um, Unlike here in the US, where we elect our heads of state in the UK, the king and the queen is the head of state. And so when the queen died, her son took over. Essentially, the moment she was proclaimed dead, he became the new king. Um, and the reason for this is, is something called the law of primogeniture. And this uh, word primogeniture is just a really fancy word that means firstborn. And then the law of primogeniture simply means that the firstborn child is the one who oversees the estate of the deceased parents when they die. So when this law is applied to monarchs like Queen Elizabeth, it means that title, king or queen, and the power and the wealth and the status that's associated with it gets passed down. So when Queen Elizabeth died, her firstborn, Charles, became king, and all of the royal estate was ceded to him. And when he dies, this responsibility will fall to his firstborn, and so on and so forth, and this will carry on for years, at least as long as the monarchy of the UK and its commonwealth continues. But primogeniture doesn't only apply to monarchies. Uh, It also applies in the ancient world to firstborn sons of all backgrounds. Um, 
they were given this special authority, this special honor, uh, for as long as uh, you know their family line continued on. So in Israelite society, the rights and privileges of being a firstborn resulted in considerable prestige and status. They were considered the most qualified person to manage the family's estate simply before, uh, just because they were born first. Um, and because of this responsibility, firstborns typically received a double portion of the inheritance relative to their siblings, too. And I think some of us are maybe glad that's not the case now. Um, and then, and then Israel, Israel kind of took it a step further. In Exodus 13, we're also told that because God spared firstborn sons of the Israelites uh, at the Passover, the firstborn also belonged to God. And so they were meant to redeem their sons by offering a sacrifice in that place. So in Luke 2.23, we read about Mary and Joseph doing this for Jesus because he was their firstborn son. So in the Bible, this law of primogenitor uh, is usually translated as birthright in your Bibles. That's the word you'll see. It's a noun in Hebrew that's also related to another Hebrew adjective that means firstborn. So these words are highly connected in the Bible. This birthright concept, uh, in this cultural setting especially, was significantly different, though, than how we think of it in our Western world, in our context. Um, But this is how families operated in Israel, in Israelite society and in many other cultures throughout history. Yet despite this cultural norm, God repeatedly disrupts these rights of the firstborn in the storyline of the Bible. And he gives greater blessings to, and responsibilities to less likely candidates, to latecomers. And he undermines um, our human assumptions about power. So with our limited time together, I want to do two things. First, I want to make the case that birthright is actually a really significant theme in the Bible, even if this is the first time you've ever heard it talked about in a sermon or Sunday school or in church in general. And to do this, I have to take a really high-speed, surface-level look at it, but I'm hoping it'll come across. Uh, Sometimes themes in scriptures are really explicit, things like atonement and holiness and covenant. This isn't one of those things. It's a little more under the surface, but I promise you it's there, even if it's not explicitly named. And so today's theme is a lot like that the theme of the birthright. Then the second thing I want to do is I want to show you that this birthright theme isn't just something to put in your head knowledge-wise, but it's actually really good news. It's really connected to the gospel. Um, So regardless of your birth order or your family origin, um, it's important for you, and I'll show you why. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's pray really quick for this message. Father, um, thank you uh, for the opportunity uh, to go into your word, um, to discover something that might, might seem kind of strange to some of us, but uh, pray that you would, uh, you would open our hearts, you would open our minds to understand you better, to know you, not just know about you, but to truly know you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned before, God often undermines the cultural expectations of biblical characters. I'll bless the younger, the less experienced, the latecomer over the firstborn. And many of the prominent leaders that you, that you know of from your Bibles fall into this pattern. So we're just going to start off by walking through a couple of those. First of all, uh, in Genesis 4, we read about two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain the older and Abel the younger. So in this case, uh, we, have, we have two brothers that bring their sacrifices before God, but... 
Abel's sacrifice is favored over Cain's. Cain becomes furious that his younger brother has been elevated over him. And then in verses 6 and 7 of Genesis 4, God talks to Cain and he says, Why are you angry? Why is your face falling? If you do good, won't you be lifted up? But if you do not do good, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so although Abel is elevated after him, God assures Cain that he can experience blessing and exaltation too, if he does good. But Cain is not able to hear that message. He can't seem to contain his rage. And he gives in to anger, and he kills his brother. He doesn't do good. And he allows that sin that's crouching at the door to overtake him. Later in Genesis, uh, Abraham and uh, Sarah's son Isaac is chosen to continue the Messianic line over Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael. Ishmael and his mother are sent away in Genesis 21. Interestingly, though, God promises Ishmael that he, too, would be the father of a great nation. Ishmael even has 12 sons, just like his nephew, Jacob, whose 12 sons become the namesake of the 12 tribes of Israel. Unlike Cain, who lets his anger lead him to murder, Ishmael, it seems, experiences blessing too, even though his younger brother received the birthright. This demonstrates for us that just because one person is blessed in a special way doesn't mean that others can uh, not also experience a blessing. A curse isn't guaranteed just because somebody else is blessed. Ishmael seems to have gotten that, and he does what is good. A generation later, Abraham's son Isaac had two sons of his own, twins named Esau and Jacob. Uh, Esau was born first, so the birthright was technically his, but Jacob was crafty, and desiring the birthright for himself, he deceives Esau into selling him his birthright for some bread and some red lentil stew. Not really a good trade. Uh, and then a few chapters later, in Genesis 27, Jacob takes it a step further and he ropes his mother in on it. And, and so Jacob and Rebekah, his mother, are working together to trick an aging Isaac, his father, into giving that birthright to Jacob instead of Esau. And, and what's weirdest of all of it is that God ultimately honors this reversal. It's story, the story feels really off-putting and unusual and kind of unfair, especially when you consider the dishonest ways in which Jacob gets what he wants, but that's what we read. And so we, we see this reversal. We also see this reversal among women in Scripture. Uh, in Genesis 29, Jacob wants to marry Rachel, the younger uh, daughter of Laban, and Jacob works for uh, Laban for seven years in order to marry Rachel, but Laban wants his older daughter, Leah, to marry first. So much like Jacob tricked his brother and father to gain the birthright, Laban tricked Jacob by passing off Leah as Rachel on their wedding night, which is pretty messed up. And it's, it's hard to say precisely how Jacob was tricked. Um, you kind of have to use your imagination on that one. But whatever the case is, Laban very clearly robbed Jacob of his choice bride. And instead of accepting Leah honorably, Jacob worked another seven years to marry Rachel, too. Rachel was loved by Jacob at the expense of Leah. And not only was Rachel elevated over Leah, but also so were her sons. So the, although Jacob had older children 
with Leah, Joseph, who was the youngest, or was, was the son of Rachel, was elevated over these older sons of Leah. And even among Leah's son, it was Judah, her youngest, who became the tribal ancestor of Jesus. So these deviations are actually even more fascinating when we consider that there's a, actually a law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, that commands men with sons from two wives uh, to, to not play favorites, essentially. That whoever was born first is the one who's supposed to receive the birthright. And so this story messes all of that up. And so I can't help but wonder, maybe this law is meant to remind us of some of these stories, or maybe these stories are meant to, to remind us of this law. But either way, there's something strange afoot. And if these stories feel weird and convoluted and even kind of gross at points, I get it. Uh, some of the details are really troubling. But the larger point still stands that God continuously uh, backs the younger siblings and the less than ideal leaders. And the examples I've given so far are all just from Genesis. Um, but Moses, David, Solomon, and more had their status uh, elevated to that of a firstborn. It seems like God loves an underdog story. In 1984, uh, the Oscar-winning film Amadeus came out. Uh, it's, it's truly one of my favorites, especially as sort of a, lack, a lapsed musician. Um, even if a lot of it is fictional, you should know that a lot of it is fictional. But it's a really interesting story, and it begins in a psychiatric hospital. And we're introduced to this character whose name is Salieri. This guy. And uh, so in this opening scene, Salieri is speaking with a priest. And he's describing to this priest how even in his youth he desired to be a composer, much to his father's displeasure. As a young man, he prayed to God to make him a famous music writer. And if God would agree, Salieri promised in return to give God all of the glory for his fame. It sounds like such a great thing. Salieri tells this priest then that soon afterwards, his father uh, just rolled over and died. And Salieri did not mourn this. He saw it as a sign from God that, yes, this is my destiny. I can, I can finally be the composer that I think I can be. And so some years later, Salieri um, becomes the court composer to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, the most renowned position you could get in that time in the world. And so in theory, Salieri would have been like ridiculously wealthy and famous, like Beyonce, Taylor Swift rolled together. Like, it would have, he would have eaten, like, everybody would have known his name, essentially. But there was another composer taking the world by storm at that time, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. While most Westerners know the name of Mozart, most of us don't know the name Salieri. Uh, and while Salieri has dedicated his life to making this music for God, Mozart was often depicted as a drunk disorganized, immature, adulterous party boy. Uh, and he made a joke of every situation. He's constantly giggling and laughing throughout the movie. And yet, in Salieri's eyes, God had blessed Mozart with the fame that he longed for. In one scene, Salieri tells his priest about a masquerade party he attended, at which Mozart, not realizing Salieri was in attendance because of the masks, openly caricatured his music to the delight and laughter of the other partygoers. And then agitated by this memory, Salieri says the following to the priest. That was not Mozart laughing, Father. That was God. 
That was God laughing at me through that obscene giggle. Later in the movie, while staring at a crucifix above his fireplace, Salieri addresses God directly again and says, From now on, we are enemies, you and me. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. Salieri then throws the crucifix into the fire and spends the remainder of the film plotting to sabotage and defraud Mozart. Do you ever feel denigrated in this way? Do you ever feel like Salieri? Does the anger and the disappointment well up in you when you see others accomplish what you wish you could accomplish? Do you feel like your best efforts are disrespected, overlooked? As we've seen so far, the Bible is full of characters who felt this way too. And I could spend a lot more time talking about those. Uh, But I think I've made the point that this is a significant, recurring biblical theme. And I'm only just scratching the surface here right now. So I encourage you to uh, keep digging into this remarkable biblical pattern. There are a lot of great resources out there. You can come talk to me if you're more curious. Uh, We don't know exactly why God elevates some people over others. And some people dealt with this mystery and this frustration in better ways than others, as we can see in the biblical story. And maybe you're struggling too. But now I want to explain why this scene is actually good news for you and for me, even if these examples kind of leave a bad taste in our mouth. And to do this, I actually want to look uh, at Paul's letter to the Colossians in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, book of Colossians, I'm going to read from chapter 1. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15 and going through 20. That's Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's a lot happening in this passage that I can't really get to. Um, but we should kind of expect that, because this is one of the big passages for uh, developing our theology of Jesus as God and as man. So it's an important passage. These verses teach us at least two things that are relevant to our discussion this morning um, as we talk about birthright, and that actually show us the good news. And you might have noticed them as I read just now. I put a little bit of emphasis in there. But first, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And second, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So let me uh, kind of unpack that first point. I'm hitting the wrong button, I think. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So first of all, Paul equates being the image of God with being the firstborn of all creation. Uh, He reiterates that the status of as human beings are created in the image of God 
um, is important. Uh, God's people are often referred to as the firstborn in Scripture. God calls Israel his firstborn, for instance. And, uh, and this verse reminds us of that as well. And Jesus is unique among human beings because he's both God and he's the human image of God. He's the creator of all things, and he's also this integral part of his own creation. He's entered into his creation. It's a wonder, it's a mystery, but it's such good news. And because of his status, Paul also demonstrates that Jesus is the rightful heir of his creation. All things were created through him and for him. Creation is Jesus' birthright. Why is this good news? It's good news because Jesus actually created us to be his vice regents. We read about this in Genesis 1. We're meant to be his, his co-rulers. We're created to be sub-kings and queens over his creation. As Joe mentioned a few weeks ago, so often evangelical theology has been strong on sin and salvation, which is very important. But we leave out the bookends of scripture sometimes. We forget about the good creation and the good new creation that's coming. And we forget about how this is all important uh, in terms of how God rules and, and has purpose for his cosmos. Jesus' status as the firstborn of creation reminds us that he will make all things new and that his people are part of that plan. We are not saved from sin and death. Or, sorry, we are not just saved from sin and death, but we are also saved to everlasting life, abundance, flourishing. We're saved to something. And part of our mission to make disciples of all nations is to welcome people into this plan, into God's plan for his creation. Because we bear God's image as human beings, we can share in this inheritance with Jesus. And he wants to share it with us. He enables us to live out this calling as well. We just have to accept that invitation. That's probably why Hebrews 12.23 calls the church the assembly of the firstborn. We're underdogs, and Jesus is rooting for us. But Paul doesn't just tell Jesus that he, or doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He also says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And this is important too. Very simply, this is saying that Jesus is the first one to be permanently resurrected from the dead. Uh, you may not realize this, but Jesus, at this very moment, has a physical resurrected body, and he reigns in heaven from that. He's still just as human as ever. Just like you, just like me. And the Bible tells us um, a lot about people who have ascended to heaven. There's people like Lazarus or Jairus' daughter who, uh, they come back to life for a time. But then they ultimately die again. They're waiting the, the coming permanent resurrection that only Jesus has experienced right now. And that's why this passage is calling Jesus the firstborn of the dead. And this is a promise for us, too. One day, you and I, we're going to die. Yes. But, if you trust Jesus, you will, you will experience resurrection to a new glorified body, just like Jesus. Jesus executed the greatest reversal of all by dying for us, so that we could be partakers of this inheritance, and also experience that resurrection with him. So this is why the birthright theme is such good news. Colossians 1 makes it clear that this theme culminates with Jesus, who represents both the humble outsider who is elevated to a position of authority, but at the same time, all along, he was the rightful heir. Birthright isn't mentioned directly in Scripture much, 
but it is a fundamental assumption throughout the story. And, it, and it's important, and it, and it really just takes up so much of the arc of the narrative. Birthright, like temple or baptism, is a symbol that points us to Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn son of God, but he also fulfills the thematic role of the younger sibling. He didn't take his rights as the firstborn as an excuse to avoid serving others, as we learn if we read Philippians 2. Rather, he lived as an outcast, and he served others, and he gave up his life, and he never asserted his high status, and he instead took on a low social position and an honor-shame culture. He was fully God and fully human. And he's the legitimate firstborn in every respect. But he invites you to be an heir as well. He wants to adopt you as a child of God. Even in the Beatitudes uh, in Matthew 5, which we read to one another in our call to worship today, kind of remind us that we're saved to this inheritance, to this resurrection life, to co-rule of creation with our Savior alongside the Creator, God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. Those who have nothing to offer God, who know their need, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. I hope you know your need for Jesus. But not only that, I hope you see the beautiful life that he offers. Jesus wants to share his inheritance with you. Will you follow him into new life? I want to close today by thinking about the scripture uh, that Andrew read so well for us today uh, from Matthew 20. I won't reread the whole thing, but but recall uh, that Jesus was telling another one of those really remarkable uh, parables of the kingdom, where he's kind of describing the way it will be. And at the end of this parable, in verse 16, Jesus says these famous words, The last will be first, and the first last. With these words, in fact, with Jesus' whole life, he was redefining power. In God's kingdom, those with true authority must humble themselves by becoming servants. Jesus served people who were poor, unwell, outcast. He served outsiders, people on the margins of society, widows, orphans, immigrants. He even served people like the Samaritan woman at the well, or the Roman centurion, or the tax collector Zacchaeus, people who the religious leaders of his day condemned. Jesus loved the unlovable. Although sacrificial service was at the center of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus also confronted religious people who were not acting in love. He exposed the way they abused religious observance uh, in order to elevate themselves, to give themselves more power. He called them out and told them to serve. And when we follow Jesus, we join a new kind of family uh, with a new way of understanding power. This new family is the church. Uh, We're called to give up petty sibling rivalries and share in a charge to serve God and each other. That's how we co-rule in God's kingdom. And God is powerful in the midst of our weaknesses. So let's not squander what God has given us to steward. But humans have historically sought power and privilege and prestige and domination and have done whatever they can to control other people. Jesus has redefined power. So we need to embrace it. Not as something to be seized, but as something that we can receive from God. And as the parable in Matthew 20 teaches, God is opposed to people abusing power. So in a figurative sense, humans are the last one of creation, but it's consistently the latecomers whom God chooses to rule. 
And he wants to share that power and authority with others. But we need to remember the ways in which he redefines that. So use that privilege to do good, to bless others, and to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world. Um, he was the, he's, he is fully God. He is fully human. And he was that perfect human, the firstborn, uh, and the rightful heir in every way. And we're, we're just grateful for him. We're grateful that he is our Savior. And we, uh, Lord, we just we ask that you would uh, transform our hearts and our minds. And, and give us uh, your Holy Spirit and enable us to, to serve others well, to love the unlovable, and to remember that even we were unlovable once. Um, and to just trust you, Lord, and to accept the gift that you offer us. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org